0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Winging It, the official podcast of the Rochester Red Wings. My name is Nate Rowan, the Director of Communications, and today we have an interview with Bob Matthews, who honestly, surprisingly, and abruptly retired on Friday after a long career in local media here in Rochester. He had been with the Times Union when it was around the Democrat and Chronicle, and then finished his career at News Radio Wham 1180, had a show for a long time from 6 to 8 p.m. on that station, and on Friday announced early on in that show that it was going to be his last show on Friday and that he was going to retire. The show was a lot of people calling in and thanking Bob for, Everything that he had done, I know the Red Wings specifically owe Bob a lot. A lot of people credit him with pushing to get Frontier Field built. And he always covered the team, good seasons, bad seasons, whatever it may be. So I know the Red Wings are appreciative of him for his efforts and how he fairly and accurately covered the team. So we thought this week it would be a good opportunity to kind of tell Bob's story a little bit, how he got started in media and his background that kind of led him to the career that he ended up having. Voice of the Red Wings, Josh Wetzel, chats with Bob here in just a second before we start the interview. I do want to remind everyone that you can reach out to us on our social media accounts at Rock Red Wings, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you're listening on the Anchor app, you can also send us a voice message. And if it's appropriate, we may include it in a future episode. You can also email the Red Wings office info at redwingsbaseball.com for any suggestions. I know we had a suggestion last week to try and get umpire Joe West on the podcast. And I don't know how likely that will be. But I do have a contact with the Umpires Association, and I did send an email. So we'll see, uh, we'll see what comes of that. But we appreciate the input and suggestions. We really do read all the messages that come in on all our social media accounts and the email account. I know people think that we don't, but we do. We see every single one of them. We also have a lot of new merchandise available in our team store. The team store is offering some curbside pickup as well. So check out the Red Wings team store for new merchandise at redwingsbaseball.com. dot com. All right, here's Josh's conversation with recently retired Bob Matthews.
1: How'd you come to the decision, Bob, to hang it up? Well, I was a
2: reporter columnist uh for forty two years at the paper and they had uh when you get to be sixty five, they had buyouts and everything and they kinda they didn't want me to leave, but they kind of didn't want me to stay either. They just assumed that I left after I reached that age. And so they gave me the bio. So I, t- uh, fortunately I had a radio show on WHAM, 50,000 watt station that I'd had since 1985. So that I, you know, it's something that I enjoyed doing and I would work just as hard and prepare for. So, so that was it. And just, um, the pandemic, uh, it got to me, Josh, uh, I was a victim, although not not physically, not medically, but I was just, uh, um, I'm now 73 years old. I'm a recent diabetic, and those are typical things that, you know, are most vulnerable to disease or whatever it is. So uh, I was at work, and, you know, fellow workers, they kind of, I think they wanted to avoid me. I don't blame them under the circumstances. I don't know if they were afraid that I would give them something or they would give me something. I don't know, but it was that was a little uncomfortable. And it was very tough for two months to do a nightly two-hour sports show without any sports to talk about because I don't know much about politics or or modern music or anything like that. I'm a sports guy. I've always been a sports guy. And with no sports, it got to be a burden, and it got to be really tough and just wasn't as much fun anymore. And I was obviously pissed. Returning age, I got my pension at the paper, I got my Social Security so I could afford to leave and had a little bit saved up, not a lot, but a little I made the decision. They, they wanted me to stay. They asked me to stay. And uh, Bob Morgan, the boss, very nice about it. But I just said, well, if I'm ever going to go, this is a good time. So I did it. And uh, the first week's been tough. I'm sure I'll adopt better as I go along. I hope so, at least.
1: What do you think you're going to miss the most here? Just uh, being on the radio or is it just the sports no, oh, i'm gonna
2: i'm gonna miss uh i'm gonna miss having access to all the sports computers and I had the uh the cable t v in my office at work, which I had on constantly on on sports of course and um you know the camaraderie at at the station I was working with really good people nice people uh much younger for the most part and uh so i um, I miss a lot of it but i I miss being busy that's probably the main thing I miss being busy I've always been busy. And I miss talking to the people. I I, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed to rise a night for 35 years, and you miss that too.
1: Did you ever imagine in your wildest dreams, by the way, that you would wind up hosting a a radio show at any point, let alone for as long as you did?
2: No, well, there was a a time there when when I – I thought I was okay as a columnist. I was one of the youngest columnists in the country, I think. Frank Carden, my boss, the Times Union at the time, uh, our veteran sports columnist, left, and uh, or for some reason asked not to write a column anymore. So Frank gave me a shot. You know, I, w- I worked hard and I was uh, uh, I thought I was a decent writer, I guess. And he gave me a shot. He liked my enthusiasm, and so uh, that was like in 1978, I think. And then I just um you know, once you get a position like that it have been filled by some some really talented people, people you respected, people I grew up reading from Rochester. I was determined that I wouldn't to let anybody down, mainly Frank Cardin, my boss, and, and the readers. So, um I worked really hard. I think I a decent column. And uh, so in nineteen eighty five, WHAM out of the blue Guy called me up. Jeff Haldick, I believe, uh, was the... One of the guys behind it, and you said, "Well, we're we're a news station, but we want to experiment with some sports. You would be interested in doing a one-hour sports talk show." So I said, "Sure, I'll give it a try." I remember leaving the paper that night, and I just said to somebody, "I said, well, I wonder how long this is going to last." And the first night was pretty tough, but uh, I caught on. And 35 years later, it was uh, it was time to go.
1: Did it come pretty easy to you hosting a show? Because I mean, it, to me, it's even oh, yeah. intimidating, you know, to to think about covering two, three hours, even if you're talking about sports. I mean, it, it's kind of an intimidating thing.
2: Well, it went from it went from one. I think it was one hour for very not a, not very long, but obviously they they didn't have trouble selling ads because they expanded it to two hours, and then very briefly, much many years later, they wanted to go to three hours. And I just thought that was a little, that would have been a little. T- so, uh, but for two hours, that was basically what it was for all those years. And, and it was fun. you know, I, 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 did a lot of homework, um, you know, in a, in a bigger city, you're probably familiar with this stuff, Josh, but in a bigger city and the, uh, you know, the, the nationals radio sports talk shows, they all have people doing it. And it's much easier when you're doing it with somebody. Yeah. I was a one man gang because we are, what, a mid-sized market. And they really couldn't forget before I understood that. So, but I became used to doing it, and uh until until last two months, I had talked about it. I was never short on words or topics, but um again, I was a victim of the pandemic because it knocked all the sports out. There was nothing, and particularly, well, you know, when the Red Wings are playing or the Amherst are playing, that's, I, that's one thing I was proud of. I really tried to support selfishly because it was a, a source of a lot of my, what I was talking about that I tried to try minor league teams, like they were major league teams and they were pretty much the main, the main topics that I would talk about every night, the Red Wings or the Amherst or soccer soccer's not my favorite, but I tried to give soccer a decent shot. And, uh, so that was, that was basically it. So to answer your question, no, it wasn't tough. It was fun until the last two months. And maybe it's a combination of age and, um, I just thought I thought, well, I gotta retire someday and I don't have any idea when there's gonna be sports again. Um, maybe I'm getting old a little bit seen out, but I'm I'm worried, Josh. I don't I don't know why everybody's so optimistic there's gonna be sports anytime soon. And I, I I I admire them. I guess they're trying to play these sports now. of it's economic, you know, they wanna make money. But I just think uh, the scientists, the the experts are telling us there's gonna be a second wave coming in the fall of this, uh whatever it is, this disease or pandemic. And I, I'm just fearful that we've done everything we're supposed to do, social distancing, closing things up. I'm afraid now that things are gradually, I don't think, psychologically, because so many people are so depressed about sitting around and a lot of people still... And now you you know, a lot of people, a lot of states they are rebelling now. They they wanna get out and have life like usual. And I just wonder if this pandemic comes back in the fall, and these experts are right. Now these same experts said we're gonna have what, ten million people die, so they they were uh cautiously pessimistic, I guess. But I if it if it comes back straight in the fall, what are we gonna do? I mean, people are gonna be more down than they are now. So I, I wish I could be more optimistic. I, I just I can't see baseball coming back. I kind of hope it doesn't. I can't see such a convoluted half a season. Uh, I don't know without any fans. I don't know.
1: Well, unfo- what do you think, Josh? Yeah, unfortunately, what do you want? I, <laughs> unfortunately, I uh, I tend to be in agreement with you on all those counts, Bob. Uh, but I want to shift topics because I don't want to get all bummed okay. out right now. All right. I want to. How did okay. you, How did you start at the paper? What was your first? gig at the newspaper what were you covering
2: okay well i guess it started in in high school when i when i was uh uh, my senior year i put out a weekly uh about six or seven sheets typewritten, and i go in the the, in the the office the secretary of the school they let me run off from on the mimeograph machine back then it's called baron essentials i went to brighton high school they were brighton barons so i called it baron essentials and it was just seven or eight pages of uh updating all of the teams and so that got my got my, uh, you know that's where I started out I guess and then I went to college and uh, I was on the basketball team and uh, I was kind of a, a decent jock in intramurals, I was the intramural athlete there, that kind of stuff, but I loved sports, but I wasn't writing but I would slip columns underneath the door as the sports editor at the Virgin, which was the name of the paper at my college and he would first time I was shocked but then every week I, I slipped under his uh, uh, door and for the rest of I was there it was in the every, every week although I was never an official member of the staff so so that was it then I went in the army because uh, I would have been drafted so I went I volunteered I wanted to be a clerk because I knew I couldn't be a fighter So, but somehow everything in the army you wind up not doing what they promised you so I wound up being in a um, just basic, basic, training. and then because I was a college graduate, they tried to send me to sergeant school and I protested that. So, um, so I wound up, wound up going to Vietnam and the first day in Vietnam, I'm in a jet boat with about three other, about three jet boats of young guys. And we're all infantrymen. I forget what the MOS was, but we're all still, so fortunately for me, probably it just my life, um, one of the customers of the company came out and said, Well, one of our clerks, there were three companies. One of our clerks has malaria. We need a clerk. So I I didn't I you know, big deal. So that was ironic. I wanted to be a clerk, but then they made me into a, a grunt which I wasn't I had no mood for. So then uh, the guy said, How many of you guys uh, went to high school? And everybody of course raised their hand. How many graduated from high school? It was amazing. About half of the kids, now kids, uh, I was older than most of them. Most of them were high school grads, I thought. But only about half of them even graduated from high school. I only went to college. Now, out of three top of guys, there were five guys left that went to college. How many graduated? I was the only one. So he said, well, you're the clerk. So I became the clerk. So uh, that prevented me from going out in the jungle because they – because uh, of my education, they would have made me a i would have wound up being a sergeant and Although I protested I got out doing that and I I grew up in Brighton Josh at twelve corners. I got lost at twelve corners sometimes I'm exaggerating just a little bit if they sent me out in the jungle in Vietnam in charge of a squad of guys i couldn't I couldn't have cut it so that was just I was very lucky that that uh, that got malaria I wound up sick for one year. And, uh, oh, one quick thing. I don't know if I should say this, Josh, but the first, first month I was the clerk, my company out in the bush, out in the boondocks, we got overrun by combination NVA and the Viet Cong. And my company got overrun. And we just, again, I'm back in the rear area. Um, so the, the commanding officer, the, the, what, what the guy was in charge of the company, he had not even been out there that day, that night. But he comes in, he said, "Private Matthews, I want you to write up all of my men for medals. And I want you to put me in for a Congressional Medal of Honor. And I said, I'm thinking to myself, what? A Congressional Medal of Honor? I don't even know what happened. And you weren't even So Anyway, So part of the deal is I had to go out that morning and technically identify bodies because that was the procedure. I didn't know any of these kids. And we had like 40 guys killed, 40 people severely injured, and they didn't find one body of a North Vietnamese or a Viet Cong. There were blood trails brought out to the jungle. But I had to write up. I stayed up for two days and two nights. Because wow. the, the guy that led the company, he tripped me. So, Captain Matthews put, put my man in for a, a medal, me for a pressure medal, and I said, sir. I didn't say, sir, but you, you weren't there. He said, "And if you don't get all these guys medals, you're going to be out there." And for the first time in my life, I saw that body. I saw forty of them, and it wasn't pretty sight. And I said, "Holy! Oh, I can't. If I go out there, I'll last two days." So for like two days and two nights, I can pack a panel with drawings and you know pictures and 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 I it was. This is, pretty much totally fictitious. And so we sent in to to wherever we sent all this stuff into, I forget now. But the bottom line is, about a couple months later, we got a big pack set to pack my little house where I had my little tape right in and all that stuff. And I opened it up. It was just all medals. All write-ups for medals. Every single guy that I put in for a medal got a medal. Some of them were like you know I silver stars for that's a real high honor and the this company commander got knocked down thank goodness to to i think he got a silver star wasn't even there but so that was a uh that was that was my vietnam deal so then i got oh. out of vietnam come home come home and uh i went to the i wanted to be in i wanted to be at the paper. I thought it was a writer. So I, I went to the paper. They put me in the compo- in the uh uh teletype room where you where all of the information came in and you had to strip them off and uh they had these uh uh the machines you, just, you had to stick your hands in there after they were still very sharp and I cut my finger a little bit and I said, This isn't for me so I, I went to the sports editor. and said, Well I really wanna work here but I just can't I can't hack in the composing room so Again, the guy gave me a break, and um, so immediately I went to the sports staff, started at the very bottom, and worked my way up. So, I guess that's how I became a sports writer, and I'm glad I did because it's been a lot of fun. And, and again, I was I'm very proud that I, I think I think without any claim to fame, um, I really tried to hold our minor league teams like major league teams. They meant so much to me because I grew up watching them all, and it pains me now. That the paper, because of uh, you know financial problems, and they're so short-staffed. As you all know, just the Red Wings, the Amherst, all of our teams. Well, at one time I think we had eleven pro teams simultaneously. I think it was that many. Gradually, we lost them all. Now there's only a couple left, and a big reason was there was no coverage of them in the daily paper. And and the last couple years, the the Red Wings. When do they do a story on the Red Wings in the paper? How often? And over the course of a year.
1: Yeah, did, you get, did you get
2: 10 stories in? Not very often. And now because of their deadlines, the when they take their little tidy little write-ups, and, and they don't even do box scores anymore, but they're for the game two days before. And their excuse is, well, people can get their information from other places. Well, not when... Not when People are used to getting their information from a newspaper. And now they fill it all with high school stuff. Can't you get high school information from the various high school, you know, don't they are have websites? They report scores and do little write-ups. I think they do. But the pro teams, I mean, the Amherst this year had a good team. You get nothing paper. The, the Red Wings, there were a lot of interesting stories on the Red Wings the last several years. They draw... You can count on Friday and Saturday nights. What do you draw? Eight, nine, ten thousand, eleven thousand? You have spectacular promotions and nothing to And I I don't know. It's just very sad. Very sad.
1: Bob, uh, how long were you actually the beat writer for the Red Wings? Because you did cover the beat for a while, right?
2: No, I, of well, for a little while, I, I started out. Well, it was a run. My first team was the 1971 Red Wings. And I shared it with Jim Castor and uh after that I shared it with Larry Bump and a couple other people. But I became a columnist, you know, relatively early in the game. So I didn't I went out all the time. I was out there all the time. Right. Like I was a I was the backup scorer for Run Lustig for years. And I scored a lot of games and uh, but I was out there almost every night as a columnist. And I didn't always write about the Red Wings, but I was always there. Same with the Emirates. I, am you know, I rarely missed an Embers game. I missed some soccer, because it's not my cup of tea. But uh um, so I, I, from then on, I, I think five, if I wrote, I, I wrote more than five columns a week because I don't, I didn't really have a life. I wasn't married or anything. So um, I wrote five, six columns a week, and then when they combined staffs, the Times Union. Well, well, the Times Union Democrat, they combined staffs for a couple of years. I wrote two different columns every day, one for the Times Union and one for the Democrat and Chronicle. And I, they didn't really want me to do that because I think they were trying to quietly kill the Times Union. They wanted the Democrat and Chronicle to be the one that wound up being that. But I just felt people that you know had read me for so many years in the Times Union. When we merged, I I wanted to give the Times Union people something different, so I wrote a different column. I think it was for two or three years before the Times Union officially folded. I was writing two different columns every day, plus a long one on Sunday for the D and C. I don't
1: think
2: there. I don't know if, if anybody ever, because again, I didn't have much of a life other than my job and local sports. <laughs> for two for two for three years, I was writing ten columns every day of the week, plus on Sunday. I don't think anybody in the country has ever done that.
1: What uh, stood out to you about that 1971 team that you covered?
2: Well, it was just, uh, well, you know, for those that aren't as familiar as, as you, Josh, and one reason why I respect you so much, you know the history of this team as well as anybody in town. But 1971, that team was just a spectacular team not just because of Bobby Critch and Don Baylor, who the previous year had been two of the best players in the league, two of the best players in minor league baseball. Pritch had played half of the 1970 season for the Red Wings before the Orioles called him up. He left her hitting 388. He was scoring more than a run a game. And Don Baylor was selected the minor league player of the year in 1970. I think he was a, maybe the here with Roger Freed, I think I forget. But anyway, so the 71 team had Gritch and Baylor, they they sent down, got sent down by Baltimore. And they would have been probably starting for the majority of teams in the major leagues. But, but that was when Baltimore was its absolute best star at every position, a veteran player. So they sent those two guys down. And fortunately, Baylor and Gritch were best friends. And had one of them been sent down, I think they might not have reported. But they both came down in a bad frame of mind, angry, and wanted to prove they were really hungry. They wanted to prove the Orioles made a mistake. And those two guys were fabulous the whole year long. And then they had, well, first base, Terry Crowley. He got sent down by the Orioles. He was mad. Half a season. What did he hit? 19 home runs in half a season? Uh, second base, Don Fraudfield. Came from West henrietta High School, uh, so as soon as he finished school, every for two years, he was signed to the Red Wings. He was he was upset. He just missed making the Boston Red Sox the year before he quit. So he came down. The school year would end. He played second base for the Red Wings. He wasn't an automatic out. He was a great fielder, tremendous hands, great on the double play. He and Gritsch became a fabulous double play combination. Gritsch switched from second base in 1970 to shortstop. In 1971, and the Orioles told him, "Well, could you just work on? Uh, we we able to hit more home runs." So the guy goes out. Oh, his average went from 3.88. To, I don't I don't know what it was. Just in seven in 71 it was three. I don't know. But he hit he hit. I don't know how much he hit, hit a whole bunch of home runs. Um, and I saw that he hit a home runs over the right uh, sign in right center field. The same sign. <laughs> the guy was he was just a tremendous player. Baylor had another great year. Uh third baseman Steve Demeter, tremendous minor League shortstop triple guy that made the all-star team two years at Syracuse came here. He was an all-star for us. Uh left field Scott had the best year of his career. Uh center field Richie Coggins. Um he was a tremendous player, came out of nowhere. He was he was fabulous. Um uh, Catcher Johnny Oates, nicest guy you'd ever meet. He had the best year of his career offensively. Uh, Baylor in right field. I mean, fabulous player. And, I mean, even the reserves were interesting. They just got Larry Johnson, sea lion, shaped like a sea lion, couldn't run at all. But Joe Alcari had him in the lower minors, loved the guy. Handed sitter struck out like once a week. And he was the primary uh, DH or for, uh, um, pinch hitter. And he had over three hundred that year. Uh, Ron Shelton, the guy that wrote the uh Old Durham. Both, Ron Shelton was a back he was a backup middle infield that year. Well with with pitch and Fasio, he never got a chance to play. He wound up playing about sixty games. That was a pretty good little But It was his last season. And of course he spent the chronicling Joe Al to- all of Joe's stories about life in the Low Miners and and had lived in the Low Miners in the Oreo organization for five or six years. So so then he retired after year and wrote the book and, and we now uh uh Steve Jalkowski the late Steve Jalkowski uh, what uh Lelouch guy Larouche guy and Joe a lot of people think Joe had a lot to do with the uh with the main character Crash Davis. And so anyway, so and the Laura Harrison for one season, was as good a pitcher as ever seen with the Red Wings in all these years. And he could also hit. He's a hitter, and he was like 15 and five. Had all kinds of strikeouts. Got injured in the and I think the first first second first year of the first round of the playoffs, he hurt his leg. He was out for the year. So Freddie Bean takes over. A guy that everybody thought was shot. His arm was killing him. He went out there and took Ward's place as the stopper and did a great job in the books, fabulous Mickey Scott. What was he? 11, 10, 1, I think. I don't know, but he was a great left uh You would have loved the guy. Very finesse guy. Perfect form. And Orlando, I, I don't know if, even, even, if you know the Orlando, Orlando Payne story, Josh, but uh, uh, he was like almost 40 years old, and he was from Cuba, and he would be the coach and sometimes on the Miami team in uh the Florida State League, whatever it was, when they were very low on the minors. And after after the two seasons, when his season ended down in Florida, he would come up here to help out the Red Wings. And he was fabulous for the Red Wings, particularly in 71. His father died uh, during the uh, Junior World Series. His father died. He went back home. Uh, it was either, I don't know if it was Cuba or Miami, probably Miami. And Red Wings paid his fright to come back. Uh, for the last couple of games in the Junior World Series against Denver. And he was, uh, fittingly, I, he I got the final save. And the Red Wings said, that's the best money we ever spent. So that, that whole team was just just incredible. And I, I thought the first team I uh, covered, man, is it going to be like this every year? And nonetheless, we've had a lot of good teams since, but there will never be another team like the 1971 Red Wings. They were just uh Fabulous. And they were like a five hundred team through the first uh fifty games probably. And then they just tried to
1: leave apart. At least you don't have too many memories about it, Bob.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I didn't no, you asked me. I told no, that's you that great. that's, that's great. why they were that's why they were they were a fabulous team. And by the way, they let all the minor leagues in attendance that year and they made more money than any team in all the minor leagues. And that was that was baseball play baseball is his best. We had a lot of good years before and since of course. But uh, and maybe it's I can't imagine ever being topped.
1: Now of course a lot of folks give you a ton of credit for getting Frontier Field built, but are there aspects of Silver Stadium that you miss a little bit?
2: Yeah, I miss the right field porch. I like porch. and uh you ne- did you did you get to see the you never saw it, right? The no stadium? Mm mm but it was, um, well, there were, there were a lot of problems. For one thing, when you got more than, when they got more than 5,000 people, the parking was a tremendous problem. Uh, you know, they didn't have a huge parking lot. And then you had to, people had to park on the side streets. And, um, towards the end, the side streets were the place you want to park. Unfortunately. And, uh, but the food was good. I missed the spiral staircase up to the press box. That was unique and and nice. Um, but right field was the best, short porch and and in uh, right field, and uh, that was that was nice. Um, the atmosphere was great. Uh, frontier Field, what a lot of people don't realize. Uh, pretty much, they had the they needed a new stadium. I mean, they would have got it anyway. They didn't need me pounding the drums, but I, I just thought there was resistance to it. And um, you know, like for example, Mrs. Silver, she wanted to keep the. We won't get into the practice fight, but, you know, the reason why there was a practice fight, the main reason was Silver didn't want the stadium moved. And Bill Farrell made the mistake of suggesting maybe they need a new stadium. And I, I understand perfectly why she didn't want that. Maurice Silver was the greatest person in the history of the Rochester Red Wings. And, you know, he devoted his life and, and died probably, possibly because he worked so hard to keep the team alive. He saved the team twice. Um, all by himself, because he was such a wizard financially and a charismatic guy. But um. So anyway, so uh, minor league baseball, major league baseballs, uh said that if they certain minor league facilities weren't place, they wouldn't be allowed to have teams. And and so, although we renovated uh, Silver Stadium, and I liked it at the time because it made it it made it much nicer. And I, I looking back, I was a fool. Like man, they. And now it's a Taj Mahal. It was fine from a Taj Mahal. And the public didn't really accept it that much because the, they made larger clubhouses, which the public couldn't see. And there are other little improvements that had to be made, but weren't so dramatic. You know, they didn't knock anybody's socks off. They didn't make people come to the ballpark like Frontier did. Um, so they built Frontier, and, and I think everybody now would, would admit it's getting old. Oh, man, I can't believe how long it's been now. But, um. I think it's still a beautiful ballpark. And, uh, of course, uh, since Rochester built front the field, how many field, how many other teams in the league have built stadiums since Rochester? Josh, almost, you know that almost by all all of them.
1: But, Yeah, almost all of them now.
2: So some people say, well, as a matter of fact, I got a, a text at one of the last weeks I was at the radio station. Said, well, now how do you feel? Well, uh, the Red Wings were like in the middle of the league in attendance. And I just... You know, I, I, wouldn't, I wasn't mad or anything, but I just answered the guy. Responded. I said, "Well, um, bigger cities than Rochester built even more modern, better stadiums than Frontier, perhaps. I think some some cases they probably were better. I can't believe they all were." And so that's why. And we still try. And so, uh, well, someone else also, if I could say one thing. I think Frontier Field has contributed with good crowds, you know, steady attendance all those years. Wise investing by management. Uh this past season they had like five million dollars in the bank and some people were critical of that. You know, some non baseball fans, uh people who are are concerned about finances and everything and, and wasting money. They say, How can a minor league team have five million dollars in the bank? Now I credit Naomi and, and Gary Larder, particularly with Gary and his genius with the stock market. But um the combination of fans turning out, great promotions, um, good work by you, making people want to go to games when they weren't listening to you. Um, that, all, that all equaled $5 million. I think that's what it was this past fiscal year. And, and I asked Gary, who's a very good friend of mine, Gary Larder, um, the chairman of the board, not chairman of the board anymore. I thought, well, what is he now? President? He's some title. I don't know what Gary's title is now. Well, I think he is what chairman. Is of the, the I title. think
1: he's chairman of the board right now. No, yeah, okay. I think so. But
2: anyway, so uh, so Gary's. uh very good friends with Gary, and he just explained to me. He said, "Well, that's for a rainy day," and I said, "What do you mean, a rainy day?" And well, it's just for a rainy day, and now it turns out a rainy day is a pandemic, and I think, yeah, Josh, it's a, it's a I, downpour. I, I worry. Yeah, it, it, but I feel very bad. I think there are minor league teams. Not only the forty they're going to die because of the goofy commissioner, uh, you know, streamlining the minors. Not only they're going to lose forty cities that, who knows how many fans in those forty cities grew up watching their minor leaguers and and loving baseball that are now going to be left by baseball. But but anyway, so now with this pandemic. Um, we're still going to have, you got that $5 million, we're okay, we're fine. But I think some other teams and the miners are going to be in a lot of trouble because I don't think the majors are going to bail them out. The majors might be uh to, to bail out for 40 teams, those talents that are losing their teams, but I don't know how much I'm going to help the other teams.
1: But, well, I, I'm surprised yeah. that you missed the spiral staircase at Silver Stadium. That seems like that would be well, a little I, bit I, of I, a risk. Well, I, would
2: miss, I, I wouldn't miss it now because I don't have a time getting getting you know, negotiating it. I put on about, I was a skinny mini once, and now uh, particularly, now that I've uh, I've pulled up in my in my humble abode, I I bet I weigh about 240 now. But uh, the staircase, it was, a, it was a problem for some other guys, from the older guys had trouble with it. And it was very narrow, and it was the only way to get up. It was really, it was something, I don't, I don't know.
1: It sounds I like know, it they, a nightmare to bring the radio equipment up there. From my perspective, I'm sure
2: it was. I'm sure
1: it was. Uh, who do you have a list of like most underrated Red Wings of all time? I'm curious about that.
2: Well, for one season, for one season, and he was on the seventy one team. Sam, we are part of Perilla. I guess I've seen stories since his daughter was interviewed for one long article. I guess he was Korea, not Perilla.
1: Okay, Perilla
2: was how you pronounced it in his language. But anyway, he, he played left field, and he I think he played like two games for the like that the year before, and they finally released him, and he was like in his late twenties, and supposedly not a great fielder, but he I think he had a 333 that year every day. He had so many clutch hits, and he was you know kind of a surly guy, but he was a tremendous hitter that year, and in one of the playoff games he. He made two great catches in one game and hit a couple of home runs because uh, he found out, the story goes, that there was money, extra money, for for winning the Junior World Series. So one of the uh, winner takes all games in the I O playoffs. He asked Joe, he said, Joe, do we really get money for the Junior World Series? And Joe said, yeah, sure. So we went out and he hit two home runs that night. Mm-hmm. Pearl it. That's just the kind of guy. And anyway, so he came back the next year, did nothing, and finally got relieved. I think that was it for him in baseball. He was one of the many guys in that team that had career years. It's one reason I like that team so much. Another guy was uh, underrated. I don't know. Uh, um, P.J. Forbes. I don't think he was underrated
1: because he was one of the most popular players.
2: Was he underrated? I don't
1: think he was underrated. Well, He's in the Red Wings Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, well, okay.
2: So he wasn't underrated. So I, I, mean, I, I, I think a lot of guys were underrated, as, but as I a can't kid think Bob, any of them
1: right now. As a kid, Bob, did uh, did you see Luke Easter play very much?
2: Of course. He's my favorite player. So what, what yeah. are, what I are was, your memories? I was a Red Wing fan. I was a Red Wing fan when he played for Buffalo and came in here all the time and killed us. Uh, then um, in 1959, the Philadelphia Phillies were Buffalo's uh, uh, parent club. And they decided they had this uh, younger first baseman, Pacho Ferreira, and they wanted him to play every day. So, Luke, although Luke had hit, you know, 30 home runs, led the league in home runs and RBIs like uh, three years in a row for Buffalo, and he was well into his 40s then, they sold him the roster for $100. And he had lost a little bit. He lost a little bit. But he came here. And immediately, a guy that had killed the Red Wings all that time and was a legend. He was a legend. And, I mean, if if he were allowed to play in the big leagues, if it weren't for the, you know, blacks not being allowed to play, who knows how Luke could have done. Because he was past his prime by the time he got to Cleveland in the early 50s. You know, his legs were killing him, and he was in his mid-20s, late-30s. And he still had, I think he had 86 major league home runs in three years. And, uh, but anyway, so then he went down to the minors, Triple A, first, I think it was, uh, maybe Charleston one year, and, uh, went to Buffalo and helped save their franchise, came here. And he was just such a popular guy. The first year here, he had 22 homers and, uh, 70 RBIs. He still had something left. But after that, for the next couple of years, he just played maybe once or twice a week and, um, pinch hit. And, but he would sign autographs before and after games, and, um, he, he moved to the winner and you know, promoted the team. Just super popular guy. My all-time favorite red wing. And, and of course, I think his number's retired, but it, yep. I think it's retired. It's in the center field fence out there with Maury and yeah. Joe. And I, I think uh, that was very fitting. I can't think of any other number that they would add to that. I think those are the uh, those are the right people. But I was glad they recognized Luke and and you know a lot of people it was a long time ago some people don't even know why he was them and never will and I think that's uh, that's their
1: loss. Yeah, how do you think his power would have ranked against uh, some some guys like even more recent vintage like a Justin Morneau or Adam Brat Walker or even a, a guy like Jim Fuller in the seventies?
2: Well, Fuller and Fuller and Walker were so similar. They had immense power. They were right-handed hitters. Um, uh, but Easter, Easter, there was something amazing about Easter. Now, as more time passes, the more stories are told. It seemed like every home run he hit was a monster shot that hit the light towers. Because he did a couple times, but now it just seems like they were all like that. You know, like like the natural movie. He just he had a habit of hitting the light towers. just moonshots. And you know, you know the famous story about Luke. Some kid came up and said, "Hey Luke, I saw the longest home run you ever hit." And the, and so Luke said, "Oh yeah? What was that?" He says, "Well, um you hit it and it landed like in a, you know, like 500 feet away." And Luke said, "Kid, if you saw a band, that wasn't my longest home run."
1: <laughs> Pretty good line. Yeah, well,
2: well, he was a—he was quite a good man, and I remember I was covering spring training the year that he was shot and killed. He was—he uh, was robbed and uh, shot him and killed him immediately. That was in Cleveland, right? And that was right? a sad day for me. Yeah, and I—I I, I cried. I was at spring training that morning when Frank Carden called me, and I was really upset for quite a while. Guy deserved better than that. You know, he's yeah. had enough. He got. He got cheated out of playing in the big leagues in his prime because he happened to be an African-American. And then to be shot like that, he was he was taking the payroll in uh, to the bank for his fellow um, uh, employees, I guess, when these two punks just uh, robbed him and shot him. Mm. There was a slightest moment, My covering the Red Wings, that's for sure.
1: Now I know you're a fan of the universal DH idea. Do you have any other oh, do you have any other a long time. Do, do you have any other uh things you would like to see implemented in baseball?
2: Well, I like the limit on the uh, in the late innings. Okay. Uh, I wish they would things like to speed up. I don't mind anything they do to speed up the game because baseball has not really adapted to the to change in Americans' way of life you know people don't have in the old days nothing better than to go to a ball game for three hours
1: do you like you the know, idea of an electronic be... strike zone bob the robot umpires no, no.
2: Okay. i don't i don't even like replays i don't even like replays uh, i like it when umpires mess up that's part of the that's part of the allure of baseball it's part of the umpires messing up they don't on purpose they just make mistakes who doesn't? Players make mistakes too. Writers make mistakes. Even Josh, you probably made a mistake or two. Oh, lots booth. of them.
1: Lots of them. Every game.
2: Well, that's a part of the game. Everybody's human. And uh, But I love, I've never understood, and I gradually, uh, I think and now I might be in the majority. I never understood why people thought there was any entertainment value in getting for themselves. And this talk about strategy, There's there's ample strategy in the American League, but, but, I people to spend money to watch pitchers try to hit, to me, was one of the dumbest things in all of sports, and I'm happy to say the new deal is they're going to have the universal DH, and now some people, are saying I heard John Dettulio say on the radio, say uh, and for the rest of, and for the 2020 season, they'll be universal DH. Uh, I think our record is saying, there's, the universal DH is going to be forever. This isn't a one-year experiment. They finally seen the light. This was their excuse. I think I think uh, all of the National League old town owners that were in favor of pitchers hitting themselves, they didn't want to copy the American League. But so let's try to go to ball games to see athletes that are at best at what they do. Pitchers hitting is not the best of what they do. Pitchers pitch, hitters hit. It's that easy. It's that simple. Oh, I never asked you, Josh. What do you think about the DH?
1: You know, I'm a little bit mixed. I'm 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 80% in agreement with you, although I do like when pitchers actually can hit and and help themselves out. But those guys are so few and far between that... Uh, oh, yeah.
2: Well, one thing they're saying now, Josh, they're saying, well, what about Big Sexy? Big Sexy, 42 years old. Clear average, like 70. That's the first time run. The oldest player ever did his first time run in the major leagues. Bartolo? Yeah, I said, well, that happens once every 100 years. Take the If that's the best excuse you got for a DH, that makes the the point even better. They don't need it.
1: And as far as the strategy stuff goes, Joe Altobelli was in agreement with you. Uh, He always felt that the. uh, And and keep in mind, Joe managed in both the National League and the American League, and he felt that the strategic uh, angle. The argument for National League, he he felt that was overrated because a lot of times when the pitcher's time was coming up in the order, well, you didn't really have much of a choice. You automatically just pinch hit for him. So there really wasn't that much strategy involved in making that decision. He felt it was a really tough call strategically, though, without uh, or with the DH trying to determine when to take his starting pitcher out of the game. He felt that that was a really tough strategic decision yeah. to make.
2: Well, another plus H of course. How many American League veteran guys have been able to hang on as DHs?
1: Lots of them, yeah.
2: So a lot of them came from the National League,
1: yeah. and
2: I think that the entertainment stuff was the National League. I mean, look at the Twins. Best,
1: you know, they got a guy right now that he probably be retired to run for the DH, Nelson Cruz. Yes. Yeah. But anyway, so. All right, Bob. Boy, the, the Red Wings, I know, are sh- certainly appreciative of all the great coverage that you have given the team over the years. And, of course, again, a lot of Red Wing fans credit you for really helping Frontier Field get built. You're a member of the Red Wings Hall of Fame. And uh, we certainly wish you the best in retirement. And hopefully we can see you at the ballpark here pretty soon. Okay, Josh. Thanks for your time.
0: All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Winging It. want to thank Josh Wetzel and Bob Matthews for joining the pod. My name is Nate Rowan, signing off. We'll talk to you next week on another edition of Winging It.